I want to know what's the deal with zero trust and it being a buzzword. Trace, can we demystify that a little bit t- today? Like what, what is it about zero trust that gets the stigma? I mean, it's like anything else in any space when there's enough gravity behind it, marketing and sales go, Ooh, I could use that and I can make some money off of it. And then it becomes a poison well that people are drawing from. And it's not because there's a lack of veracity to the model or the strategy or whatever else. It's just because as people, we get saturated with the stuff that bounces around and eventually you go, look, there's no way that this could possibly be a thing. It's just, if everyone's talking about it, then it has to be BS. Welcome to Audience First, a podcast for tech marketers looking to break out of the echo chamber to better understand their audience and turn them into loyal customers. Every week, Danny Wolf has brutally honest conversations with busy tech buyers about what really motivates them, the things they hate that vendors do, and what you can do about it. Get access to practical information on how to build authentic relationships with your audience, listen to and talk with your buyers, and apply real customer insights to your strategies and tactics. You owe it to the world to unmute your mic. Are you ready? This episode is proudly sponsored by Checkpoint Software, a leading provider of cybersecurity solutions to over 100,000 corporate enterprises and governments globally. Checkpoint Infinity's portfolio of solutions protects enterprises and public organizations from fifth-generation cyber attacks with an industry-leading catch rate of malware, ransomware, and other threats. To learn more about Checkpoint and its Infinity portfolio, visit Checkpoint.com. All right, welcome to another episode of Audience First. I am stoked to have the Aaron Brung... Wow, okay, Aaron, I'm going to butcher your last name. So sorry. How do you pronounce your last name? It's Brongersma. Brongersma. Okay, we're going to have to figure out where what is the origin of that last name uh, shortly. But uh, welcome to the show. And Chase Cunningham, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on the call today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely. All right, so... Let's kick it off. Aaron, who are you? What do you do? And why the hell do you do it? Hi. Um, so I'm Aaron Brungersma. Uh, the team here at Checkpoint calls me AB, just to uh, to shortcut the last name challenge there. Um, and uh, so I lead the Cloud Center of Excellence at Checkpoint. And uh, it's a newly formed team. Uh, but one of the big goals that we had was to try to shorten and, and kind of short circuit the, the uh, life cycle between pre-sales and post-sales. And also just try to get rid of the uh, the weird stigma of people telling you it's not their job, right? Like, like you know, when you work with a customer and sometimes you re- you hit that roadblock and you're like, eh, that's not actually me. Well, my team, uh, we're kind of the folks that run first into it and, uh, you know, solve pr- problems for our customers first, and then uh, we'll we'll sort out who owns it later. Amazing. What's your motivation though for for your doing what you do in your role? Yeah, I so. I think that I've I've kind of been switching back and forth from individual contributor to manager to uh, you know product owner and in throughout my career, and I think that my main motivation is that uh, you know if I if I don't feel passionate enough about the problem space that I'm trying to solve, it it really removes my my energy right. So if I'm if I'm not pumped up about the problem, if I don't think that the problem has enough. Um, I don't know if it doesn't align with kind of my, uh, the things that interest me, things like uh, I like infrastructure security. I like cloud security. Um, you know, security has always been a challenge for every organization I've been at. And so this is an opportunity for me to kind of bring the infrastructure engineers to the table, uh, where, you know, we we're used to doing all of the automation, but now it's time to, uh, 
know, to, to step up and, and also think uh, security first when we're going to uh, roll out infrastructure. Got you. All right, Chase, over to you. Who are you? What are you doing? Why the hell do you do it? Yeah, so uh, I'm the chief strategy officer currently at Ericom Software. I do a lot of uh, spreading of hate and discontent around zero trust. I write books that no one reads and I try and raise uh, relatively useful humans. And uh, why I do it is I think security, honestly, in the digital space is a human right. I think we need to make it where it is available for everybody. And I, uh, being a former red teamer and doing government stuff, I don't like there is a power shuffle going on digital space and we are in the winning position. So. Let's kind of drill down into that. What Right now in your role, what's your bleeding neck challenge? Oh, uh, well, the biggest thing is to get people to stop pissing money away on fishing training, honestly, is what I'm trying to. It's not that I don't think we should train people to know what's going on and be smarter about, you know, clicking links and whatever else. But there are technologies now that you can put in front of the user that can make it where the likelihood of them actually having a successful exploit from a fish is substantially lower. So I, you know, I work with so many small and mid-sized businesses. I don't want them wasting money on something that decades of data tells us statistically won't make a difference. That's, that's my, my current sort of, I guess you'd say, like you said, bleeding edge kind of thing I'm trying to get is reallocate, not all of it, but some of that budget towards technology, human fixes, because we're people, people click things. Got you. Got you. How about you, Aaron, in your role managing the Cloud Center of Excellence team, what's your bleeding neck challenge over at Checkpoint? Yeah, I think, uh, I think right now um, it's, uh, you know, from a product standpoint, the thing that I'm, I'm trying to solve the, the most of is, is fighting alert fatigue, which, which kind of toes into the whole story of zero trust, because if you can't trust your alerts, right, like, and, and maybe not as much as zero trust, but just trust in general, is that like, if you can't trust the alerts that you have, or if you can't trust um, you know, the systems that you have in place to let you know when there are problems, um, you know, how will you ever fix them? And so one of the big pieces was, you know, we've, we've been collecting tons of data from posture management to network security. Uh, and it's now time to take advantage of some of the new, more exciting things around AI and just even just better machine learning in general, uh, to, to supercharge the people that actually have to manage these systems. Instead of giving me 30,000 alerts of, of, you know, maybe on a, on a scale of one to 10.1, give me the top 10, you know, from a range of eight to nine and tell me what those things are. So I can go stomp those out first thing in the morning, because I'm not going to spend all day, you know, solving these problems. Like you have real, um, work minutia that you have to work around. And so, you know, getting rid of the alert fatigue and the overwhelming part of that, that's been one of the big drivers for me this year. All right. You mentioned zero trust. I yeah. want to know. I want to know what's the deal with zero trust. What's the word with the, the, all the stigma around zero trust and it being a buzzword? Trace, can we demystify that a little bit t today? Like, what what is it about zero trust that gets the stigma? Oh, it's a buzzword, right? I mean, it's like anything else in any space. When there's enough gravity behind it, marketing and sales go, ooh, I could use that and I can make some money off of it. And then it becomes a... Uh, a poison well that people are drawing from. And it's not because there's a lack of veracity to the model or the strategy or whatever else. It's just because as people, we get saturated with the um, stuff that bounces around. And eventually you go, look, there's no way that this could possibly be a thing. It's just 
if everyone's talking about it, then it has to be BS. And I mean, that's probably part of the problem with us as humans, because there could be good stuff going on. But the, the issue that we really have is you've got uh, decades. Actually, I like to remind people, you know, when the first failure of the perimeter based model of security was. <laughs> it was the fall of Troy, right? Think about what happened in Troy. That's why we used to call malware Trojans actually. So like that literally was proof that the model that we were putting in place was fundamentally not going to work. And all we did was digitize it and make it move at the speed of light and thought we fixed the problem. So like we've known for over a thousand years, perimeter-based model of security had a fundamental inherent flaw. ZT, which actually has been around in uh, kind of non-ZT terms for quite a long time, has finally become an adopted strategy because it deals with the reality of the issue of the adversary needs to be successful. And that's what we're trying to get to is there's, there's things that you have to have as a bad guy to be successful inside of a compromised system, remove those things. And that way you win. And it's not, it's not, you're never going to be breached, never going to be compromised. I tell people I would do workshops with, like, you're going to get hacked. Like that's just a given death taxes and cyber. So don't worry about it. Like deal with control, deal with response, those types of things. Any kind of color commentary there, Aaron? I think, you know, a, a lot of the challenge around any of these marketing buzz, buzzwords, right, is that um, I think they start in a place of good. I think zero trust uh, for me was one of the, you know, one of the first times I read through some of the, uh, the Google papers about this when I was actually running engineering was, you know, let's, let's flip our brains around a little bit and as developers and as engineers, uh, we need to start releasing our applications as if they would be immediately on the internet, you know, and that, and treat our end users as if they were always on the internet. And I think that that started down a really healthy path. Um, I think that that changed a lot of my engineering culture at the companies that I've been at. Uh, and I think that the, you know, that was the good of it. And then I think that when it gets productized, every company puts their spin on it. And, uh, and I think that's where, uh, you know, something good then, you know, can be, uh, can be kind of churned around and, and spun in different directions. Uh, but I think that the, at the heart of the matter, you know, I think it, it starts having you as an organization start asking very deep questions about how are we going to extend services to our end users and to our customers. How do you recommend um, vendors, and maybe also, Aaron, you have some um, concrete examples or stories from this. Like, how do, you, how do you recommend vendors prescriptively and successfully map solutions so that, to ZTX so that it's efficient for folks like you and other buyers? Uh, Chase, maybe you can help more with that because like, I'm, I'm more of the, you know, as the vendor side of the house, I think by, I end up with a little bit of, you know, a different skew on this. So I'd love to hear yours first. Yeah. So actually when I was at Forrester, I created a framework called the zero trust extended ecosystem. And that's the framework that the DOD has adopted. That's the framework that's being used internationally. If you're a vendor and you're trying to figure out how you fit into a zero trust strategy. I would say go Google zero trust extended ecosystem, look at the framework and then map yourself to that framework. Because if you don't, you're ice skating uphill for no reason other than you like ice skating really hard um, because it's been the adopted framework. And then you actually can look at that pretty clearly and say, okay, well, we do these things that fit into this need and that's how you map it. So it's uh, it's big, it's broad, but it's also being used um, by a variety of work. I mean, it's, it's helping guide the DOD's entire strategy, which is just under $2 billion worth of investment. So, 
I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but there are a lot of frameworks out there, yet vendors still don't map to those frameworks. So yeah, it's it's. I, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of what we have going on in cyber, honestly, is like big pharma for cyber, where it's better to treat the symptoms than to actually cure the disease because there's more money in it. If we look at this problem fundamentally, and this is where there's a shift in mind change, like Aaron was talking about, that's required. I want to eliminate those things so that I am successful and the bad guy goes somewhere else. If I can do that, then I win. And Aaron's, to Aaron's point, Google's a great example, and I'm a huge fan of what Google's done because Beyond Corp and those approaches that they put in place, that's because of Operation Aurora. And they got their ass handed to the Aurora, but they learned from it and they come forward. And now they have deployed their version of the ZT strategy that they call Beyond Corp to all of their employees globally and their contractors and whatever else. You don't hear about Google in the news as far as having activity. So proof is in the pudding. Um, it's just really whether or not you approach the problem intelligently, if you ask me. Aaron, any concrete examples um, from your team over at Checkpoint on how you kind of map to some zero trust principles that have been effective for your customers? Yeah, I think, you know, we're really big now on, on leaning heavily in on frameworks, whether it is zero trust or even just, you know, cloud security in general, right? Like, I, I think that you need to have, when you're having a conversation, you do need to have somewhat of a neutral third party. I think it's fair. I think it helps, uh, it helps level the playing field for an RFE or an RFI for a customer. Um, but it also, you know, it, it also removes any of the, the, the crazy things that get added in to RFIs that are only locking in for a specific vendor. Like I've always found those to be like very disingenuous and, and at the end of the day, you know, one of the big pieces that I always try to ask the customers, even before I get to the point of a framework, I want to know what, what is the expected outcome? Because I think a lot of times, you know, what happens is there's a, there's a top-down approach where, you know, a C-suite will talk to a, you know, to a VP and then they start having conversation like you need zero trust. And before you know it, the whole organization strategy is implement zero trust, but it's like, well, what gaps did you have? Why are you doing this? Like, like, how do you evolve what you're doing today? to move in that direction. I think that leveraging a framework like Z the Zero Trust Extended Framework, uh, I like the NIST Zero Trust fr uh, Framework that's come out. Um, mapping to those keeps us honest. It also keeps us on the right path. Um, but it also kind of shows you a, a maturity model, right? Like uh, I always like to think back of security as, as being, you know, you have a maturity model there. And not every company that you talk to is, you know, in crawl. And certainly not every one of them is in run. Uh, but if you don't know where you're at on the spectrum there, it's really difficult to move forward and have an program. So, um, you know, just in, in closing there, I, I would say that, you know, Checkpoint maps to these frameworks as well. Uh, and we do that a lot of times in a discovery session or in a workshop and we'll sit down with our customers. Um, but it's very much tailored, right? Like mm -hmm. you can't you can't just drop in a white paper or drop in a, a you know, a pre-canned RFP or something like that to a customer and say, here you go. This is everything you need to know about Zero Trust. Do all these things and you're safe. Um, I think you absolutely have to understand the organization that you're solving for. I want to dig in a little bit deeper on that, Aaron. What are some of the ways vendors can better understand their buyers from that perspective, though? Like, what, like give me some steps to dig in a little bit deeper to understand in order how, how to map. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things is that you've got to get the right people at the table. That tends to be one of the hardest problems that I run into is that um, team A obviously doesn't talk to team B. And the larger the organization, that extrapolates out, you know, to 10 plus teams, right? 
And so when one team is driving an initiative like Zero Trust, um, if not all of the teams inside of that organization are aligned, this becomes a very painful, long, costly process for the customer. Um, you know, the the vendors win, right? It, just like you were saying, Chase, is that, uh, you know, you're, the longer the engagement goes on, the vendors win. And so, uh, and, and when the vendors are, you know, engaged for a long period of time, uh, our customers are losing. <laughs> you know, they're not solving the problem. So I think that the first part is, uh, you know, from from our sales perspective, is mapping the organization, making sure that we have all of the right people at the table. And then once again, you know, what problem are we trying to solve and how and when do we want to have that done by? And what does good look like? Like that's one of the other things, right? Uh, one of the, the key principles on my team is don't let, uh, uh, you know, excellent get in the way of good, you know, like like that uh, the desire to complete the whole puzzle completed a part of it and seen 80%. So, um, so then when we do a workshop with a customer, um, I would say that, the, you know, the big part there is, is fundamentally sitting down and looking at the different vendors that they have, um, you know, are their products internal or external, all of these little nuances help drive the conversation in different directions. And, uh, that's why I think it's just very important to, to make sure that we treat this as a, um, just like you would go to a doctor, right? Like they're going to ask you a ton of questions to make sure that you've got a, a health check and that you're, you're healthy. Uh, and, uh, and if you don't do that basic fundamental things, uh, I think that you're already, you know, you're already set up to fail. Right. Any color commentary there, Chase, that you want to add on to that? We could go dig I mean, into some. No, I, I think it's great the way that he's talking about approaching the problem. The thing that I, I try and get people to understand is number one, I billion percent agree with Aaron. The, the thing I run into is it's always a leadership issue. It's not a technology or a operational problem. You need. You need someone that is bought in on where you're going and what you're doing and that will actually drag you kicking and screaming towards success. Um, and that has to happen. And then the other thing, like he was talking about to begin the process, why would you begin plotting your, your journey towards something when you don't know where the hell you are? So this is why I tell people is actually, it's part of my workshop requirements. We're going to do a red team. Like we're going to actually do a black box full on red team. And that way I know where your weaknesses are and where the bad guys would come after you. Cause that's what you're trying to defend against. Everything else comes after that. If the position that you're taking in the dojo here is you want to be able to fight by God, go out and get the fight, like learn how to swing. Otherwise you're just standing there with your black belt on having never been in a fight. I feel like that's the kind of pr principles of life. In essence, you could apply that to anything really. And that's what I basically say to people about marketing and selling why would you try and persuade somebody before you know what the state of the union is like like diagnose the problem first before you go out swinging to your point chase i mean so, yeah, yeah i think it's uh well i was really I, I loved what you put out on linkedin the other day about your journey to the space because i mean you're somebody that's in the rigmarole right you've been through the the woods and you know what's on the other side we is because i i Honestly, I'm the ex-military guy. Like the last thing I want to do is deal with the human side of this equation because that's just not something I really enjoy or I'm good at. But the human problem we have is being uncomfortable is not fun and no one likes to be uncomfortable. And the change and business and et cetera, your life, like you're talking about, Danny, like all that stuff. It's so much easier to sit there and be like, I have this massive strategy. We're going to win. Rainbows will shine and puppies will breathe in our face and whatever else like that. That's not what actually goes on. If you don't deal with the realities of the problem and you don't plot things to defend yourself smartly, 
you're just doing Kentucky windage and that's not going to make a lick of difference. You know, Chase, one of the things that, you know, you kind of brought up again earlier on um, is that, you know, if you, if you haven't taken the punch in the face yet, right? Like you don't know what you're, you're walking into. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've noticed a lot as well is even when I'm answering an RFI or I'm solving a problem for a customer, there's very much focused on, you know, you sold me the widget, right? You sold me the service, you sold me the solution. Now we're done, right? Checkbox done, whatever. And it reminds me so much of, you know, I roll back time a little bit and I go, this is like what backup software vendors used to do to you, right? Like they sold you some backup software. They sold you some tape drives. They said, yeah, you're great to go. But if you, and you could implement the best backup software and the best tape drive, but if you never tested your backups, you know, like, how do you know if it was ever effective? And I, it, it would be, uh, you know, it's just, it's absolutely crazy to think of the number of customers where we solve and implement a lot of these pieces and then it's never tested, right? The checkbox, the, the finish line was literally, you know, roll out the code and make sure that, uh, you know, make sure that we've rolled out zero trust. That's done. Right? So some, some compliance checkbox is checked, but it never turns into an operational efficiency, right? Our, can we operationally manage zero trust? What is the overhead on our team? How fast can we respond? Do we have visibility? Like all of these little tiny things, the most important things, right? Get swept under the rug because of the checkbox of saying we did zero trust. You know, if, if, if you ever read the story of the guy that invented Kevlar, um, he was a delivery guy and he basically invented Kevlar because he was sick of having a gun stuck in his face and he built it and he, he had tested it on dummies and whatever else. And then he went to the, I think it was the Kansas city police department. And he said, I can stop your officers from being shot in the chest. And they said, awesome. Who's tested it? And he goes, well, I've tested on dummies and whatever else. And they were like, no, no, no. Who's been shot with this thing on? And he said, well, no one, I've just invented it. And they said. Well, you go shoot yourself in the chest and if it works, we'll buy him. And he literally went home and this was in the seventies, I believe he got a camcorder and set it up and you can see it on the video. He puts a 44 in his chest and like for a second, he goes, you know, praise whatever God he believes in it pulls the trigger and then it worked. And guess what? Kevlar became a thing because someone proved they drank Kool-Aid that if I'm going to say this is going to save your life, I've got to be the one to show you that I actually have faith in my product. We don't have that in cyber a lot. We have, like you said, we have, here's this thing, like a widget, or here's this, whatever you use it and, and go, and it will solve your problems. Matter of fact, I was doing, and I'll be quick, Danny, cause I know you have stuff to do, but like, I was talking with a company that was selling security software. I was talking with their board and they were talking about why they weren't getting growth. And I said, how many folks in this room are using this software you're trying to sell right now? Nobody raised their hand. And I was like, you're all liars. You're all selling crap and this is why no one will buy your product. And it's just, it's, it's the same thing. If people don't believe in what they're, and they're not willing to use it themselves and they try and take it to market as another thing to fix a problem, no one, the people will figure your crap out. Moment of silence. So beautiful. I love like that's, that's the snippet right there. Uh, all right, cool. I want to shift the conversation a little bit because we are heading, not, we're not heading towards the end, but we, we, we have a lot of ground to cover. So, uh, I do want to know, um, Chase, how do you, how do you see the zero trust extended framework kind of shifting, if at all, or evolving in the future, given, you know, the dynamic nature of the market? The biggest one is, um, when I, when I put that together, I created a, a pillar for users. Honestly, um, I think the, I got that wrong. And the reason I say that was at the time, really our focus was on human users as part of the equation. 
now because of the evolution of what's going on in space, it's really about identities. I think it's even broader than I think it's entities. So that's where I think that there's a, a, a twist that needs to come to that framework to say the user bubble is really about entities. And then within that founded framework of entities, it's these other things, users and devices and et cetera, because everything now has an identity. I'm a thermostat, a web enabled toilet, like whatever it is, it's going to have some sort of identity that's going to allow it access to something. So I think that that's the one that has to, if, you know, it's always great to look back at something that you put in the market and go, I screwed up there. Um, I think that I need to, you know, I think that we collectively need to modify. And I, I do want to ask though, how did you notice that you screwed up there? I, I mean, I won't say you screwed up. You said you screwed up. <laughs> How oh, did you yeah, notice I that there needs to be that. a change? Like what happened? What was the change moment? Uh, it's really been the evolution of all the identity solutions in the space that have come out. And, you know, you, you're always looking for, um, as somebody that studied the market, like you're always looking for, well, where is there another um, kind of policy level fix to this problem? And sure enough, it's like, well, gosh, everything has an identity. now. So if we created a framework where we bounded ourselves inside of human users, something needs to be modified love it trust so that word right we talk about zero trust we talk about trust in the industry um trust between people trusted partners even i hear between uh, buyers and vendors but i understand based on my conversations that i have that trusted partner like even is viewed as a buzzword but in your opinion um what are some ways uh, cybersecurity vendors and the folks working for the vendors can quickly and authentically, keyword authentically, establish trust with folks like you and other buyers. Is that Aaron or me? The both of you. We can give you, you there know, you go first. Yeah. All right. Um, man, authenticity. That's probably why they bring me on podcasts like this, because I tend to be the one of the more unfiltered people, because I like to admit when we're not the winner. You know, like, like the worst feeling in the entire world for anyone in sales. And, you know, my VP will probably watch this and he'll be like, hey, Aaron, shut up. <laughs> but uh, the, the thing is, is, the worst feeling is to sit across from a customer and have be misaligned at the goal, right? If your goal is, I need to close this deal because it's the only way I'm going to hit my number this quarter, then that's not the right approach to walk into a meeting. My approach when I walk into a meeting, which is the cool part of the team I'm on, is how can I help you? What's, what's falling down? What can I do to get you up and running immediately, right? And, and I think that that's been one of the problems of trust is that if the person sitting across from you at the table is only in it for a paycheck, then this is a no-go. And I, and I get it's business, right? Like, like, but as soon as you remove the, the, you know, the, the abstraction layer of like, look, this is a business transaction and realize that like the people on the other side have a desire to seek to understand your organization understand where your strengths and weaknesses are, your vendors honest about where their strengths and weaknesses are, that's when you start establishing trust. And whether you, you know, whether there's a buzzword around that or not, some of the strongest relationships I've ever had with customers is telling them when I'm not the right fit for them. You know, like when a customer comes at you and they want to buy the product and they like, I want to buy this made this flashy product from you to solve all of my problems. And when you sit there right in front of them and tell them honestly, and you say, you know, I, I appreciate you wanting to, to roll your wheelbarrow of money to me, but we're not the right fit for you. And here's why, you know, maybe you should consider this, this other architecture, this other framework or this other way to solve the problem that I don't know. I just think that that's the more 
fair way to be in business. And, and I think that that's how you establish your trust with your customers. Because if you sell somebody a security solution, you're in there for three years at least. Like these, you know, if you implement zero trust, that doesn't go away in six months or in a year, right? You can't just forklift that out. So, you know, once you, once you've made a deal with a customer in, in a program as big as zero trust or in trust in general, um, you're in there for, for quite a while. I mean, you're friends, you're practically family at that point, you know? So, um, so I think that just coming in with, uh, making sure that your product and you're honest about what your product capabilities are and where your weaknesses are, right? Um, you know, it's all software. And, and software, you know, can be tuned and, and, and trained to the direction of what our customers are doing, but you need to be very honest about what your capabilities are and where you're going. Chase, maybe you have some, uh, some feedback there or, or, yeah, I, mean, like, uh, I think in the, in the realm of trust, I mean, I ask people like, well, why do you have doors in your house and on your front door? And they're like, well, cause it keeps me, you know, it keeps stuff out. Okay. But you trust your neighbors, you trust your family. Why do you, why do you have a door? Well, cause I just want to know when they're there. Okay. So if you do that in the physical space, why would you not do that in the digital space? It's not that, it's not that you have this, you know, rage against people coming into your home or whatever else. It's just that it's a good idea to have some sort of boundary between things and spaces so that you can understand who's coming and going and have some sort of control over maybe I just don't want my parents dropping in at the, you know, unannounced because I'm a grown man and I don't want my parents dropping in, you know, unannounced, or maybe I have teenagers that bring their idiot friends over and I don't want them coming in my home unannounced. I mean, it's just, it's the same sort of thing. And it's not that you don't quote, trust your partners, but it's that there is some need to have an ability to understand what's going on, the transactions that are taking place and then have a control. That door is my control. Um, at my house, it's my two evil Pomeranians as well. Like if you get past the door, those little suckers are going to let me know that you're not supposed to be there and they'll probably run you out because one of them's a real jerk. But like, that's, that's the thing is we live in the physical space and I am, I'm continually kind of, uh, flustered at people that, that, that are irked about ZT. If you're a relatively productive, relatively safe human being, you live reduced trust state in the physical space. You should live that way in the digital space. Beautifully said. We are headed towards the end of the session. I do want to open up the floor for any questions that you may have, Aaron, uh, for Chase, and vice versa, Chase for Aaron. So feel free. I, I don't have a question, but I just want to honestly applaud Aaron. Like you may be one of the first people I've met in the space that actually has integrity. So the fact that you're saying that we may not be the right solution for you and the way that you're talking about the problem, like, if I could send you a gold sticker, I would, because I, I don't often run into people that sit in the space that you sit into that actually have an ounce of integrity and are, are willing to do things that are the right thing for the customer. So for whatever little bit of value I have, thank you for what you do. Thanks, Chase. I appreciate it. I, uh, you know, it, I, I think that that's, that's the change where, you know, there, there are people that come up through the ranks and they, they've been selling forever. Right. And, and, uh, I haven't, I haven't been in sales forever, right? I, I've been a practitioner. I've been the, you know, the person that, that builds a lot of these solutions. And now I work for, you know, one of the biggest security vendors. And, um, you know, I think that integrity goes a long way. And so, um, and, and that's my approach. And I think that, I think it works pretty solid for me. And I, I and I, I'd much rather have a strong relationships with my customers, you know, for life 
than to 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 win a quick one. So uh, I do have a question for you though, Chase, because um, so Z, you know, zero trust, I think is it, it is going to start evolving more around things with uh, you know I like some of the technologies around things like WireGuard um, and you know mesh networking. And I think that there's a there's a technology component, and then there is a um, you know a framework component. Like I you know I think that there's some major changes coming from a technology standpoint that can either supercharge this or torpedo this framework altogether. And I'm kind of curious of what your vision is or what your thoughts are on on the change of what zero trust will be in the next three to five. Uh, you know, as we as we move out outward from now. Yeah, I think cloud is where things migrate to because cloud is your last greenfield environment and there's so much more operational capability that you can have at scale there. Um, policy engines work really well in cloud instances, so that's where there's going to be growth there too. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting to me is I think there's going to be a combination in the identity space around self-sovereign identity, biometrics, and continual authentication that are going to make it where we don't have to have hundred passwords and a hundred usernames and all this other stuff. And I also have to have my driver's license and my social security card and blah, like we've, we've jumped the shark on being digital. Um, and I think the digitization of our persona becomes even more applicable in this context And ZT, if done correctly, actually enables that transition. So I, the last thing I would say is I think the network itself becomes less, not important, but less leveraged over the over the course of the evolution for the next three to five years because of the fact that in reality the network shouldn't be a security thing the network moves electrons it should be something that you use to broker connections and do isolation control but we should not have and the firewall is a good proof point of this like we should not have so much focus in my opinion on security of the network because the network is meant to move things so i think that that comes abstracted away as ZT uh, around entities becomes more clarified. Beautiful. Anything else you'd like to impart on the audience today, General, and before we sign off? Uh, um, I mean, my, my only thing would be just be smart about what you're doing and really deal with the reality of what you're facing. And you can't do that if you don't understand where you are. So start there. I guess, I guess the big thing for me is, uh, Ask your vendors tough questions. Like, uh, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to make sure that when I'm engaged and working with my customers, I want them to ask me the tough questions. And it's okay. Uh, I mean, I, I can remember back to a, had a meeting with a very large bank um, and I walked into the room and, and it was very much a situation like you described, Chase, where we had a lot of things that were in initial availability in the early access and we kind of stitched them together in answer and RFI. And I remember sitting there and them going, how many customers are on this? And I said, zero. And they said, okay, well, we're looking for a scale problem. And I go, then I think that we're the, not the right vendor for you. And it was a very difficult conversation for me, right? Because you're embarrassed, your brand's on the line, you're sitting in front of a room of a very powerful bank. But what happens when you're honest and when you're, you're having customers ask those tough questions is that that is how you're building the integrity. And I'll tell you the second time that I sat in front of the room of those people, uh, it was a little more humorous where they said, this time around, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to punch you as hard, Aaron. Right. And, and I think that goes a long way. And so, you know, everybody that's listening, you know, when you're talking to any vendor, you know, take, take checkpoint out of the mix or anything like that, just 
go and ask a couple extra questions, like dig a little deeper. Like, is this real? Are people running their workloads on this? Can you provide a reference? You know, all of those things add up to build your trust and confidence in your vendors. Uh, and so I think you absolutely need to do those things to be successful in this space. Wonderful. Thank you so much to both of you. Both of you are obviously welcome to the show anytime. Uh, we run every week. So uh, thank you so much again uh, for taking time out of your schedules to, to chat today. I hope you uh, found this insightful and uh, learned a little bit more about each other in your worlds. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks, Danny. Well, and nice to meet you, Chase. This has been another episode of Audience First. We are out. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Audience First. If you like what you've heard, feel free to follow or subscribe to Audience First on Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast streamers.